What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast I think the whole world needs right now, but I might be biased. We're so glad you're here with us today. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and joining me are two brilliant freelance sports reporters, Jessica Luther in Austin, Texas, and Shereen Ahmed up there in Canada. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. Good to be here. Good. Happy to be here. The professors have left us alone. Do you think they're going to regret it for today? The day? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> They'll find some academic way to back us up somehow. <laughs> we'll have to see if Amira and Brenda will regret their decision to have other things to do today. But look, we've got a great show. We're going to start off talking about the Me Too movement, which is the sexual assault and sexual harassment movement of women coming forward and telling their stories. And we're going to tie that to the sporting world. Then we're going to switch gears and talk about some things in sports that, believe it or not, we actually love these days. For our interview segment, I talked with women's hockey reporter Hannah Beavis about the National Women's Hockey League, which just started its third season. Then we'll have your burn pile, badass woman of the week, and even some listener mail this week. All right, let's get started. A few weeks ago, when the sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein began coming to light, the Me Too hashtag started to spread around social media, with women telling their own stories of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Jessica, do you want to talk a little bit about how the sports world has been reacting to this? Sure. So two weeks ago for our Badass Woman of the Week segment, we briefly mentioned Olympic gold medalist gymnast Michaela Maroney coming forward to say she had been sexually abused and assaulted by Dr. Larry Nasser. Now, you might remember from previous episodes, Nasser, who's actually pleaded guilty to possession of child pornography, is awaiting trial on separate criminal sexual conduct charges, and he's been sued by more than 125 women accusing him of sexual abuse, and there are currently dozens of civil suits against him. Maroney was inspired by the hashtag movement MeToo, which, you know, reemerged in full force because of Harvey Weinstein. And Maroney's words, in turn, inspired WNBA superstar Brianna Stewart, a.k.a. Stewie, to pen a piece early last week for the Players' Tribune titled Me Too, in which Stewart disclosed that she'd been molested as a child. This came on the heels of multiple athletes tweeting Me Too, including former Burn It All Down guest and WNBA guard Laisha Clarendon, swimmer Summer Sanders, and soccer legend Abby, Wamb- Abby Wambach. This also included 1992 Olympic all-around gymnastics gold medalist Tatiana Gutsu, who reported for the first time publicly that Vitaly Sherbo, the 1992 Olympic all-around champion, had raped her in 1991. Gutsu was just 15 years old at the time. 
Over the last couple of weeks, the Me Too movement has spilled over into the media itself. Political pundit Mark Halperin, Art Forum co-publisher Knight Landisman, there's the head of Amazon Studios, a New Republic literary editor, the head of NPR's news department. All of these men who make the news decide what news gets published and how those stories are framed. They've been outed as harassers or assaulters and have lost their jobs because of it. And yet, while sports is often a space where we talk about gendered violence, the Women's Media Center says these stories appear a quarter of the time in sports sections, we haven't seen the same reckoning in sports media itself. And I think it's important to contextualize this. So sports media is over 85% men, inching towards 90%. Most of them are white, hetero, cis, men with a lot of cultural privilege. According to the same Women's Media Center report, when men in sports cover sexual violence, they use 81% male sources and only 7% female. Women use male and female sources almost equally. And most damning, the WMC found that when it comes to covering the impact of reports of sexual violence, the vast majority of that coverage is about the impact on the person who was accused. Quote, the impact on alleged victims received less than 2% of coverage in sports coverage. Final thing, and thanks to Lindsay for reminding us of this, earlier this year, Fox Sports National President Jamie Horowitz was fired amid sexual harassment allegations, and Jen Sturger detailed sexual harassment allegations against anonymous ESPN executives last month. So as women in sports media, we know that so many of our peers deal with sexual harassment on a regular basis. Do we think that we're going to see an avalanche of allegations in the sports media world? Why do you think we haven't seen this so far? Shireen? I think that there was a lot of things kind of going on for me about this. I think that I just, I cried when I read Stewie's piece, first of all, because I've always seen her as sort of this formidable source. I looked at her as an incredible ally. Like she tweeted about going to protest when the travel ban, Muslim ban came out. Like she's, you know, she's up there. She was one of the women in WNBA who stood in solidarity with athletes talking about Black Lives Matter, like all this stuff matters. And again, it goes back to the idea that survivors, the burden is put on survivors to draw attention to things. It's not enough that we're just believing women. It's not enough that we're trying to teach our our, our sons and men in, the, in our communities and our lives to unlearn their toxic and dangerous behaviors. That onus is always put on, on survivors and, and women in particular. And for me, it was it, it was a lot of things. And, and from that, again, the idea that other survivors came forward, like a, a former guest on the show, Laisha Clarendon came out and, and, you know, and disclosed her abuse. Summer Sanders, Abby Wambach tweeted in support, Hope Solo did. Nancy Hogshead Makar came out and, and, and tweeted about you two just following on the on what Stewie had done following what Michaela Marooney did. So for me, it's very much domino effect that I see like women get strength from other women doing this, but it's really shitty. It has to be done in the first place. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) And I've been stuck on this sports media question. And I don't have the answer for why this hasn't why we haven't seen similar allegations in in sports media, really, there there hasn't been this avalanche like I like. There have been in other forms of media. I kind of expected it after Jen Sturger came forward and detailed some pretty horrific allegations against ESPN employees. And of course, Jen Sturger has really just been. She's received harassment from all ends of the sporting world. Of course, we know her the best, unfortunately, for 
the fact that she was on the receiving end of really horrible text messages by Brett Favre. And this was years ago when even sites like Deadspin were playing those text messages for jokes. And when the sports media world as a whole wasn't woke, (laughs) I would say, you know, I think we've come a long way in six years. And I don't think that the allegations and the Brett Favre and inappropriate text messages would be played the same way today that they were back then. But I do think that we are in a really tough spot where in sports media, more than in any other media, the men still have all of the power. Maybe it's slightly less all than they used to have, but it's still all. And I know from these whisper networks, I know from interviews I've done, from people who won't go on the record, from people who don't want their stories told, I know that this is a problem in sports media, that the way women are treated in sports media, whether they're on the low levels covering a beat like hockey or college basketball or, you know, high school sports even, or whether they're in the top levels of our industry, the people we see on television on a day in day out basis, who are really, you know, lifting up women everywhere. I've heard stories from from everyone that I can't, you know, come forward and tell. And I hope that sports media gets to this place. But I think we have a lot more work to do than even, you know, I think we're behind political media and we're behind these other forms of media. We're even behind Hollywood in these ways. And that's, God, that's depressing. (laughs) Jess? Yeah. I mean, it really is. And I think it does matter that in sports media, it's 90% or, you know, inching towards 90% men, and which is way higher than any other form of media, according to the Women's Media Center. And, you know, one of the things when I keep reading when these women come forward in these other arenas, the thing they talk about is how many men saw the harassment or even the assault, right? Like non-consensual kissing or like however you want to say it. There were witnesses to these things and men who stayed silent in the face of them. And really in a, you know, in a space like sports media where so many of them are men, that they're going to have to speak up, right? Like I don't see how any of this changes if they remain silent. And I, and I do wonder... I mean, I don't know enough about this because I'm a freelance reporter, so I don't work in a staff setting, so I don't see these kind of things. I wonder how much that plays into this, too. Like, I, I don't know. I would I would be so nervous to speak up if, if I was a freelance reporter and my reputation is everything, right? Like, I, I don't know how this changes. Yeah, and look at the state of you know, sports media as a whole. Jobs are, you know, I mean, ESPN keeps, fi- you know, keeps letting employees go. I mean, you know, Sports Illustrated is struggling financially. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a pretty landscape out there. There aren't tons of jobs. There aren't, you know, a lot of places to go. And I don't think there is the feeling that, like in political media right now or like in Hollywood, that momentum is somewhat on your side. You know, when it came to the head of NPR news being 
he eventually left on his own. But the, those women came forward initially because they were so concerned that this was the man making the choices of how NPR was going to cover all of the other stuff that was coming out about Harvey Weinstein and within Hollywood and within other media. And Rebecca Traster has a great piece about how these are, you know, these men who were outing as harassers and assaulters are the ones who like are making the editorial decisions on how we cover this, which is why I went over that in the intro to this. Like, I keep thinking about, you know, my own experiences within sports media trying to publish on this topic, and they have widely ranged. But some of them have been really difficult because of like the weird ass pushback that I get. And it's almost it's always from men because I've only had so many female editors to begin with, and they've all been lovely. And so I just keep thinking about the fact that these men the silence within sports media matters so much because so much of this coverage comes through sports media. And what does that mean? I don't, it's, yeah, it is, it's a bummer, man, when you really think about it. Well, for me, Jess, you said something a long time ago, and it always stuck with me. And I actually say this publicly. And you said that who tells the stories is as important as the stories themselves. And for me, that's really, really resonated, particularly when we talk about women's media center stats, which are hugely important, but also when we talk about the way the language is being used. And words really, really matter. And I don't understand why every sports editor, and I've said this many, many times, I've tweeted it in one of my many rants, but I don't understand why sports editors do not use and sort of adhere to recommendations from the Chicago Task Force or Femifesto that both have media toolkits on how to report about sexualized violence and, and how they can use it in sports. It's a free tool. Like, I don't understand why it's the most basic thing you can do is read how to do something properly. I'm not, I, I'm just, it stuns me why this doesn't happen. And also the discussions that happen in sports, it's sort of like, even within the media and reporting on it in the media because everything's sort of everything's interconnected it's just this the off record things that and, and Lindsay like you said the murmurings between colleagues I also am freelance so I'm not in like a, an office environment but that doesn't preclude me from getting like horrible shit like I remember I wrote about the under 17 women's world cup for bitch media and I was so excited about it because it was the first time there was a woman in a headscarf on the pitch and it was a big deal and and someone sent me like snaps of like screenshots of hijab porn and dick pics as a response to my writing and I was sort of like a hijab porn I had no idea it existed so I was like okay whatever but (laughs) which is a totally different conversation but just that was the automatic response and for me this is a form of abuse it's absolutely abusive and like I don't know this person and you know you have to shut down your dms which also leads to this is gets back into the cycle of okay so we want to protect ourselves but we end up feeling like or the discussion is oh shut off close your dms but if I close my dms someone who might have a tip or might want to reach me can't reach me like that whole idea of, well, protect yourselves. No. Why don't we just tell people not to be assholes? Like, why do the burden again come on us? And I, I hate all of it. Like, I just hate it. Is this a burn pile? <sighs> like, also? <laughs> because- no, this is, this is a giant burn. You know, <laughs> okay. we're, we're burning all of this for sure. <laughs> and look, I mean, so we talked about the strong female athletes who've coming forward, and we're talking about the sports media aspect of this. And another important, I guess, that I just want to finish on is how do we protect our young athletes, you know, our young mm-hmm. people who are just getting into sports? I mean, the biggest sex abuse, once again, hate the word scandal, but 
yeah, I don't, we need to invent a better word. Nominations, please. But, you know, Penn State, of course, comes to mind. Yes. Recently, Larry Nassar, as Jessica talked about at the top of this, uh, this segment, you know, he's been accused of sexually assaulting more than 140 young gymnasts. We're also in the midst of, and I think especially in American media, this gets overlooked a lot. But in British soccer, there is a sex abuse scandal right now, which, of course, most of the allegations are from decades ago. But there are over 560 victims, most of them young men who were talented young male soccer players, young boy soccer players who were abused by their coaches when they were coming up within the British soccer system. 560. There's been a striking lack of accountability in both places, but... Look, I want to ask both of you, because I I mean, you're brilliant and you're both mothers, too, which, you know, is another part of this. But but how do we make this? How do we make sports a safe place for women? And, I mean, for young girls and young boys to enter when there are these power structures in place that are can be so blinding? Jess, do you have any? Yeah, I literally have no idea. And Shreen... Yeah, I mean, I feel like Shreen can probably speak to this a lot more. I mean, I have a nine year old son and he barely does sports. He does some tennis, but I'm always there. Like I always go to the lessons. So I haven't dealt with anything beyond that. But, you know, I do wonder just about sports culture in general, because we have this idea that like coaches should be abusive to some point, right? Like the way that you inspire athletes is by coaches being mean to them and and making them work harder in reaction to that kind of abuse. Like that's just sort of ingrained. Like that's a given within sports culture at large. And and, and when I look at stuff like that, I'm like, I don't know how we're going to change these these hierarchies that, that do and in some cases make this very dangerous and that People, the predators can go into spaces like this and it can be very hard to call them out and and to recognize them because of the overall culture around them. I, I don't have answers, but it is something that I think a lot about. I mean, I have conversations ongoing with my my sons about consent. Like I wrote a piece about it. We I can link that to the show notes, and it's difficult. And he reminded me that before tournaments and his team coaches, I'll talk to him like the team about this. And you know, he reminded me of that. But as far as my daughter, I have a 15 year old, soon to be 16 year old, and she has all male coaches for a competitive like traveling soccer team. And we also have a system called Mom on the Bench that was implemented by her club. So there has to be a mom at all times, or like a female identifying individual who's related to the child, because, you know, everyone takes turns and we have a schedule. And so that the coaches aren't there alone. It's to protect Mm. the team. It's to protect the team. The coaches protect everybody. And let's keep in mind as well, that it's not only men that can be abusers here. So like just said, she's there regardless of who the coach is. Like, you know, I think that's important as well. And sometimes we get very comfortable because I mean, I spend a lot of time with these other parents and with this team, you know, of my children, because we see them quite a bit at practices and whatnot. But it's also about having open conversations and taking away the shame from it. If you don't present this as a situation of shame, because that's one of the things that's, you know, in my experience, and after having worked frontline in social services, it's the shame and the in, in the humiliation and the powerlessness that survivors feel. And if you can try to support in, in, in a way that makes sense, and also as a parent, just very basically, I have absolutely no answers like Jess, like, it, I'm learning as I go. Maybe I'll have the answer when I'm 107. I have no idea right now. But like, it's just, 
Like, I seriously, I've been a mom for almost 18 years and I have no idea. Like, I make everything up as I go along. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) But, you know, just to keep having open conversations. And they're really difficult conversations, but they must be had to protect our youth. Yeah. And I think on that note, it's also accountability, right? Like what we're seeing in USA Gymnastics is while the president, Steve Perry, was finally, excuse me, Steve Penny was finally fired after way too long. The board is still the same. The person who's the president now is still there while all of this was happening for decades. You know, CEO, I believe, is still in place in British soccer. You're still having the owners and the, you know, head coaches who were who were in place and who were leading these teams while this abuse was going on. They're still in place. Right. We're not holding people accountable, you know, beyond the perpetrator. And that's that's really frustrating. And we're not going to get anywhere until we do that. Moving on, after a rather depressing segment, I believe it's time that we actually talk about some things in sports that make (laughs) us smile and remind us why we love these stupid, stupid sports. Shireen, why don't you get us going? This is just going to be a little lightning round of sorts. Yeah, I just, I'd been, I found a young girl named Raisa Leal. She's a Brazilian skater from the Instagram account, Girls Who Can Skate. And we'll link their individual accounts to, to the show notes because they're brilliant. And I just get, and in one of the videos, this is actually something that was sent to me. The girls are wearing fairy costumes. I don't know if it's because of Halloween, but they're actually wearing like pixie costumes and like beautiful blue with wings and 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 not feathers. Pixies don't wear feathers. You know, like headbands <laughs> that are just and they're in tutu dresses and they're doing all these cool things like these ollies and these flips on skateboards. And I'm like, I love this. It's also become part of my self-care. So I know it's not like major league sports, but it's something that's so incredibly powerful. Just this imagery of these young women of color young very girls of color rather that are doing these super cool things on skateboards in pixie costumes very costume obsessed jess yeah so i enjoyed watching parts of the world <laughs> series i'm such a fair weather baseball fan i don't really understand the game very well i often find it challenging to get into it though i understand that like the slow methodical nature of it is why a lot of people love it but i mean when I was watching game two and game five of the World Series, like, I was like, okay, okay, I get it. Like, I mean, it was thrilling. I didn't go to bed until like close to one o'clock in the morning after game five because it just kept going. And the play was so spectacular. And it was so tense. And it was just like everything that I love about sports in a sport that I don't really watch, but I was still able to get totally into. And so and I wanted to say congratulations to the Astros, you know, well, all of them except Guriel, of course. I was especially thrilled for Jose Altuve because this summer when I was interviewing all those young girls on those baseball teams, they love Jose Altuve because he is five foot two. And they love to say, like, if Jose Altuve, who is a spectacular baseball player, if he can be spectacular in the MLB, why can't they? Right? Because there's so many people who throw the fact that they're like, you know, their body shapes, their sizes, like, that's the reason you can't be a good baseball player. You can't make it. And they're like, no, look at Altuve. So it was really fun to watch him. And so, yay. And then, you know, I'm just happy for Houston in That's general. Amazing. He's 5'2. 
Yeah, he's. you should look up pictures. He was on The Tonight Show this week, I want to say, at the same time as the cast of The Stranger Things show, which all the kids, and he is on – he's the same height as all of them. <laughs> There's a really cute story by Alicia Suji on For the Win about him actually making a fan cry because he was at Disney World and he gave his hat to a fan Aww. and the, the fan cried. It was – it was okay, yeah, I, I, know this, I know this person. It, it's beautiful. That's a nice story. There's all there's also great pictures from this year because he and Aaron Judge from the New York Yankees were sort of like the leading hitters this year and Judge is very tall and so there's these wonderful pictures of like the two of them on the on the field at the same time standing next to one another <laughs> and they're just very different sizes but they're both very good at the thing that they do which is the same thing love so, that it, anyway that's it's amazing very i've been really enjoying i haven't gotten to watch a lot because of scheduling stuff but the start of this nba season has been really fun and there are just so many great young players seeing ben simmons finally coming alive and you know getting to play and the 76ers really clicking I mean Giannis like we how blessed are we (laughs) like it's like this like seven foot point guard (laughs) who can do everything Shaq can do but plus as a point guard like it's ridiculously fun to watch I saw some clips of Christos Porzingis the other night just doing things that don't make sense on the basketball court like basketball right now you have so many so many of these guys have all of the abilities at once (laughs) like that just it just defies logic and look there's so many games and there's so many different matchups and there's so many different opportunities for these players to shine and it's it just kind of it's it's joyful in a way especially this part of the season when it's not really stressful and the stakes aren't as high you got anything else shereen I read this really great piece about Steve Kerr and uh, Steph Curry would s- stated that they would support Greg Popovich for president. <laughs> I would seriously consider moving to the U.S. if it meant that I, I was going to bring this up. Yeah, that I would I would yes. I would consider it just so I could vote for Pop. Like I can also help run a campaign from up here. I mean, I'm just I I think he's brilliant and I am all for that and it's it's just it made me so happy because some of his rants and his pressers like he uses his platform in a way he talks about white privilege. I can't talk about him enough and I think if I become Pop's friend, he'll introduce me to Tim Duncan finally. So that's that's also something Shereen, else. I I was going to say this, too, and then I looked it up. There is a site called www.popovichkerr2020 that sells Popovich Kerr 2020 oh, shirts. Oh, my like, God. They're running. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the site's about – I know, guys, listen. To, so the site's about page says, quote, Popovich Kerr 2020 is a nonpartisan grassroots movement of NBA fans and American citizens that are demanding more mature, thoughtful, and inspiring executive leadership in Washington, D.C. And then it says that if you order mugs or T-shirts from them, that 100% of all net proceeds generated from this store will be donated to the ACLU, Council on American Islamic Relations. International Rescue Committee, Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Union of Concerned Scientists. So that's www.popovichcur2020. Oh, my God. (laughs) They are the official presidential candidates of Burn It All Down. I would like to officially endorse. Officially endorse. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I'd like to finish up by talking about, I like to laugh actually at at sports people who are stupid and that makes me happy. And this week in the NFL, there were two examples that just like killed me. And maybe this is mean spirited, but whatever. (laughs) First of all, the Cincinnati Bengals, it was a trade deadline and they 
Okay, I'm just going to read this excerpt from Deadspin. So they were trying to get a quarterback trade between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cleveland Browns. The Browns are actually the ridiculous party here, as they always are. So they agreed to this trade, this quarterback trade. And then the Bengals quickly sent the necessary documents to the NFL and copied the Browns. But the Browns only sent theirs to the Bengals and not to the NFL. A source with knowledge of the Browns sequence told Cleveland.com that they... (laughs) That they sent their signed documents to the Bengals, with the exception that the Bengals would also sign it and forward it to the league. But if the if the Browns had simply copied the NFL on the document they sent to the Bengals, the trade would have gone through, but they didn't, and then the trade deadline passed. Oh my god. <laughs> So because these stupid men are bad at paperwork, (laughs) Cleveland didn't get this quarterback trade in. And so now their quarterback now knows that they wanted to replace him. But now he has to be the quarterback. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, oh my gosh. I know it's terrible, you guys, but it's also hysterical and amazing. It really and is. And then also I'd like to laugh oh, at Tom man. Brady really quickly, who literally thinks that he drinks Please, so much. Always. Who thinks he drinks so much water that he doesn't get sunburned. And he also believes... <laughs> 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 there was this, oh there was this great ESPN profile this week about Tom Brady that we're going to link in the show notes that you should all read about <laughs> his like new age science and medicine stuff and why he thinks he can play till he's 45, which... Look, he might. But anyways, I'm just going to finish this with this quote. So to what extent does Brady now think he controls his fate? Quote, the moment another player's helmet makes contact with my body, my muscles are pliable enough to absorb what's happening instantly. He writes, quote, my brain is thinking only lengthen and soften and disperse before my body absorbs and disperses the impact evenly. And I hit the ground. End quote. Or, more simply, as he puts it in the interview, quote, I know my focus on pliability has helped me avoid so many injuries and bounce back so quickly from hits. So Tom Brady sounds Sounds completely legit. (laughs) That was fun. Moving on. All right, this week I had the honor of talking to Hannah Beavis about the state of women's pro hockey in North America. Here is that interview. Hello, everyone. I am here with Hannah Beavis. She is the managing editor for the Ice Garden, a women's hockey site on SB Nation, I believe. And she is the U.S. national team writer for The Athletic. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Well, look, let's talk a little bit about the National Women's Hockey League, because we're entering year three, or I guess year three has already begun. It's kind of hard for me to believe. I covered the launch of the league just two years ago for Think Progress. I was there, you know, the week before it launched, talking to some of the players involved and going to practice in New York. And I was at that first game between the Connecticut Whale and the New York Riveters. And it was it was really exciting to just kind of see all of that. Tell us a little bit about how the league got off the ground and that early optimism that was really it it was just so fun to be a part of. Well, like you said, I mean, the build up to that first game was just so massive. They did a really good job at the beginning when the league first started kind of building up this hype. They did a really good job promoting it on social media. It really kind of just blew up this idea that all of a sudden 
there was this new women's hockey league that had just appeared seemingly from nowhere. They announced in March and then they launched just a few months later. And I don't think a lot of people expected it. They did a really good job. That hype at the beginning really was a good starting point for this league to at least kind of establish itself and and let people know what it was. It's important to note that this was the first professional women's hockey league in North America to actually pay players, but it wasn't the first quote unquote professional women's hockey league in North America because there's also the Canadian women's hockey league. And I know that there has been at times some tension between the two leagues because they're just very different business models and I believe personalities behind them. Where does that stand today? Publicly, I think the leagues acknowledge the existence of the other and that <laughs> they are politely and publicly acknowledged that there, there are two leagues. Um, but like you said, it's it's very different business models. And from what we understand, the NWHL was not meant to be a league. Danny originally approached the CWHL with the idea of an expansion team in New York. And then that obviously did not follow through with the CWHL. And now we have two leagues. And here we are three years later. The tension, I think, is still there because they are they are technically competing with each other. Specifically in Boston, there are two teams, one in the CWHL, one in the NWHL. They do kind of have two different audiences, though. The CWHL is, you know, primarily based in Canada. The NWHL is primarily based in the U.S. And the CWHL, though, is also paying its players this season. That was an announcement. A lot has happened with that league in the offseason. They expanded to China and still got some help there and are able to pay their players approximately the same amount that the NWHL is paying this season. So we've kind of got two leagues with two very different models that are kind of both at the starting line. You know, I'd actually missed the news that the CWHL was paying its players. That's fantastic. So, I mean, how, how long has a CWHL been around? And let's talk a little bit about its business model originally not paying its players. So the CWHL is, I believe, going into its 11th season this year. So it's been around and it's, it formed out of the original NWHL because women's hockey leagues have kind of just come and gone and, and have been renamed and, and whatever. So the NWHL disbanded and kind of reformed into the CWHL. And Brenda Andrus, who's their league commissioner, has always said that their model is based on slow and steady growth. So because the, the pay question has come up a lot with the, C, the CWHL because they have these world-class athletes who are essentially paying for free. And some of their gear is compensated for, and there are, are, have been prizes in the past for if you win the team championship or if you win an individual award. But she says, when we pay our players, you know, we want to make sure that we're able to pay them and continue to pay them. So their model has kind of been, you know, we're going to pay our front office staff to be able to market this league the way that it needs to be. We're going to start grassroots from the ground up. And we want to be able to be financially able to pay our players and, and increase those salaries, which I think they've accomplished, even though this is their first year that they're paying. Whereas you look at, and it's, I don't like to compare the two leagues, but when the NWHL first came out, they had salaries where the max that a player was making in year one, I believe was $25,000. And now those salaries have dropped this year. They recently announced players are making between five and 7,000 a year. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. So like you said, the very first year, there were the four teams. I believe there's one in Buffalo. We've got Connecticut, New York slash New Jersey. And then what I'm blanking on the fourth. Boston. Boston. Thank you. All the teams had a salary cap, I believe, of $270,000. $10,000 was the minimum salary. $26,000 
last year was the maximum salary. It was $25,000 the first year. Then everything was seemingly going well. Dunkin' Donuts was added on as a corporate sponsor during their first year. There were some deals with ESPN3 that were kind of announced last minute, but still seemed promising. And then halfway through last year, you had out of nowhere they announced that there were going to be salary cuts and the players weren't consulted on this. They were just told. How did that go over and how did they manage to survive the rest of that season? Yeah, shockingly, the players weren't super happy when they found out that they were salaries were getting cut. We talked earlier about how big of a deal the launch of the league was and how big of a promotion on social media that got. The salary cut was very similar in that it went viral because it was this was a league that was supposed to be paying its players. It was a, a first professional league to pay its players in North America. And now these salaries, which already weren't great for pro athletes, were getting slashed. I think it had it, it came down to the league had to make a choice ultimately. And it had to decide, do we want to fold or do we want to still try and function and understand that we have to take a step back? There were, there were some, some personnel departures i think and and investors maybe behind the scenes who who didn't come back in year two although a lot of that stuff was not isn't made public still isn't common knowledge a few players had to retire they had to leave the league because they were like look my full-time job i was banking on the salaries that i was going to make here and i can't afford to live in in new york or in boston or wherever without that extra money so a couple players left some went to play overseas but you know, the league still stayed intact, which I think the NWHL will probably consider a win after and because it was it was not a good look. There's been some controversy about who the investors are. Is that known yet? Because I know in the beginning, Danny Ryland, who is the commissioner of the league, who is, I believe she's younger than I am, I believe, and has really just kind of taken this thing out of the gates. But there's been some secrecy there about who's exactly funding this. Do we know yet? There was one who was made public in an article, I think, on ESPN, Joel Leonoff, who I do not believe is still with the league, although I'm not 100% sure about that. As for the rest, no, nobody else has been made public, so we're not really sure at the moment who who is investing in the league, where the league is getting their money from. We know that Duncan is a, is a sponsor, and they recently re-upped their partnership with them. Other than and they they have a Twitter deal now this year, although again the financial details of that aren't public. But there is reason to be optimistic going into the third year. This was always going to be a tough season because the Olympics. That means a lot of the national team players can't be a part of the league this year because they're obviously focused on the Olympics. But there was this deal announced right at the beginning of the season between a professional NHL team and one of the NWHL teams. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the New Jersey Devils have partnered with, they're now the Metropolitan Riveters, which is still so weird. They used to be the New York Riveters. Yeah, I don't I don't think I'll ever get used to that. Also, nobody considers it the Metropolitan. Like, that's just weird. <laughs> I used to live in New York. Like, nobody calls it that. <laughs> I think they're trying to stay away from calling them the New Jersey Riveters because they got all the New York fans first. And now they're like, oh, no, now we have to change our, now we have to change our image. But so they partnered with the Devils, and the Devils have kind of been involved with the NWHL for a while. They hosted their Isabel Cup final, their championship game in the Barnabas Hockey House practice rink last year. And so the Devils are partnering with the Riveters. They're, they're offering them some help with the marketing stuff. They are 
they're basically affiliated with them now. The Riveters home opener was held at the Prudential Center in the NHL rank, which was the first, that's the first time an NWHL team has played in an NHL rank. So that was a huge deal. I talked to, to Danny about it and also to Hugh Weber, the Devils president. And he said, you know, we've, we've seen increase in the Riveters season ticket holders because, you know, Devils fans oh. are calling and now saying, oh, we want to, we want to be a Riveters fan too, because they're affiliated with the Devils. So they're kind of trying to merge, I think, these these two fan bases to say, you know, this is our Devils team and this is our Riveters team now too. And the CWHL has some partnerships similar to that with NHL teams. As the NHL has said, you know, we won't partner with women's hockey unless there's one league or that's kind of been the established knowledge that they, they don't like the two league model. But individual teams, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Montreal Canadiens have done a great job with Lake Canadian and the CWHL. So there's kind of a precedence for this, but I think moving forward, the Devils partnership is going to be a big boost for the Riveters. That's really great. Look, wrapping up here, give us what what should we look out for? Give us a minute of the biggest storylines to watch and how people can watch the NWHL because the season's already underway. So the NWHL you can watch on, they have YouTube streams that they do pretty regularly. This year, they also have a Twitter deal. So some, they're going to have a game of the week posted on Twitter that you can watch live there, which is another big kind of deal this year. It's really wide open this year. The NWHL, like you said, because they lost some of the Olympians. So Boston, which has been like a perennial powerhouse and just kind of rolled over a lot of other teams in the past, is still very good, but is missing a lot of top end talent like Hillary Knight. The Riveters beat the Pride 4-1 in their home opener. So if that doesn't say, you know, there's going to be some more parity this year, I don't know what does. Beyond the NWHL, it is an Olympic year, so we're, we're going to be seeing in February some international hockey that you'll be able to watch. USA Canada are obviously going to be a highlight. Finland's going to be good this year. Russia had a good preseason series against some NWHL teams. Granted, they hadn't had very many practices yet, but still, they went undefeated in that. So that's going to be worth watching. In the CWHL, they expanded to China. So seeing how those two teams do this year is going to be interesting. And they have live streams as well. If you go to their website, you'll be able to watch there. It's just a really interesting year in women's hockey. There's a lot of new of new stuff happening. And with the Olympic year, I think we're going to see some more people kind of turning their attention to it. That's fantastic. Well, look, we're going to have you on later as the Olympics get closer to talk about all those matchups. You can follow Hannah's work at the Ice Garden and at The Athletic. And what's your Twitter handle, Hannah? You can follow me at Hannah underscore Beavis one. That's B-E-V-I-S. And we'll definitely link that in the show notes. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, friends, we finally made it to the most notorious part of the show, the burn pile. We've got the logs on the fire. The wind is blowing just the perfect amount and the flames are roaring. Jess, what are you ready to burn? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So this week, Papa John's Pizza, (laughs) it's just funny that I'm even talking about this, released their third quarter earnings, which were bad. And in the wake of that release, the company lost more than $70 million in, in less than 24 hours. In response to this, founder and CEO of Papa John's Pizza, John Schnatter, who we've all seen in those commercials, blamed kneeling football players 
and how the NFL has reacted to those kneeling players for these poor numbers. Quote, the NFL has hurt us. We are disappointed the NFL and its leadership did not resolve this. Leadership starts at the top, and this is an example of poor leadership. He went on. The controversy is polarizing the customer, polarizing the country. We expect a decline in sales to persist unless a solution is put in place. Okay, so there's no evidence, of course, that the kneeling is affecting viewership, and in turn, I guess, how much Papa John's pizza (laughs) those viewers are ordering. What we do know is, as Katie Reif at the AV Club wrote, quote, Schnatter hasn't been doing much to prop up the company's image either, making spurious claims about Obamacare, forcing him to up pizza prices, and paying his employees so little that the company was forced to settle a class action lawsuit brought by drivers in six different states. So, of course, the alt-right, white supremacists, racist Nazis, whatever makes up that end of the political spectrum these days, are all about the Papa John's pizzas. There are images of a Papa John's pizza with pepperonis in the shape of a swastika circulating on the interwebs. This has led to the worst pizza chain in America having to release a statement saying, quote, we condemn racism in all forms and any and all hate groups that support it. We do not want these individuals or groups to buy our pizza. So on top of all of this, Jerry Jones owner of the Dallas Cowboys, is also the owner of over 100 Papa John's franchises. So he went on sports radio to let everyone know that Schnatter is, quote, one of the great Americans. (laughs) Gosh, he's men. And that, quote, when he speaks, I listen. And I just want to tell you all that Jones starred in a Papa John's commercial a few years ago where he rapped through the entire thing. So according to Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, Quote, and this is from Wednesday, so it's a little old. The suspicion in some league circles is that Jones, who has reason to be even more upset with Commissioner Roger Goodell now that running back Ezekiel Elliott's suspension is back on, instigated Papa John CEO John Schnatter to use Wednesday's quarterly earnings conference call to dump on the NFL and to call out NFL leadership for failing to solve the anthem issue before it became a full-blown problem. I mean, LOL, like, this is old because Elliot's suspension was put on hold later in the week. But also, like, listen to these man babies. Like, I don't even know. Use the weekly, the quarterly earnings conference to dump on the NFL. Anyway, burn, burn all of this nonsense and especially all of the Papa John's videos. Yeah, this is smelly burn. fire, though. <laughs> but, okay, burn. Uh- <laughs> yeah, it really is. All right. My burn pile. I'm going to cheat a little bit. This is only related to sports in that it is related to the Ricketts family who own the Chicago Cubs. But anyways, it's we're just going to make it work. Okay, so I'm just going to read you this lead from this New York Times piece this week. A week ago, reporters and editors in the combined newsrooms of DNA Info and Gothamist, two of New York City's leading digital purveyors of local news, celebrated their victory in a vote to join a union. On Thursday, they lost their jobs as Joe Ricketts, the billionaire founder of TD Ameritrade, who owned the sites, shut them down. You guys. So essentially what happened here is we have a billionaire shutting down two, not just two, because he shut down DNA Info and Gothamist, who both voted to unionize last week after many threats from management, from Joe Ricketts. But he also shut down their local sites in San Francisco, Chicago, and D.C., none of which were unionized. He shut them down, 115 people, journalists, developers, advertise, salespeople, editors lost their jobs instantly. He also deleted the archives instantly, which is the most ah, cool thing you oh, can do to ah. writers. Although there is word that like that's going to come back. Their archive is going to come back in some 
some way, but I guarantee you it's not going to be Ricketts' decision. It's going to be somebody else making that comeback. He did this to simply to spite his workers who wanted better working conditions. There is no other possible way that this makes sense. He didn't even try to work with them to make these finances work. He was so put off by the fact that they wanted some more security in their jobs, that he ripped their jobs and at the same time took away a lot of great local reporting. And that's been crucial to all these cities that I mentioned, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and DC. We need more local reporting and we need to set up ways that the news isn't at the whim of billionaires. And as a country, journalism is more important than ever on all levels. And this is not okay. And look, I'm, I must admit I'm biased. Think Progress unionized soon after I got there two years ago. We are a WGA, Writers Guild of America East Union. And that is the union that the DNA Info and Gothamist had just joined. So as you know, one of their, their colleagues and fellow, you know, union members and organizers, I'm just appalled. And I just burn it. Just burn, yeah, burn, 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 burn. Shireen? I'm sort of going to piggyback off of Lynn's and just sort of say that this is in relation to writing and freelance writing and stuff. And we see that with Gothamist and we see that those type of sites shutting down. We know that Vice, we've talked about this, that Vice shut down its sports vertical. And I think that in the world of freelance writing, it gets really difficult. So I'm going to take one step. And this is kind of a personal burn and I'm salty about this, is freelancing and then invoicing and getting paid. So this is a kind of a personal thing that I've been owed money from a certain site for over a year and constant invoicing. And and it's just, it's really exhausting because the time spent invoicing and it's just really frustrating because site's supposed to be inclusive and it gives me a chance and I'm grateful for that chance to amplify. But also I need to be paid for the work I do because I've done it and I've done like five pieces and had not to be paid for over a year is not okay. And then, you know, they lose the invoice and, oh, the check was sent in the mail. Don't know we're sending it again. Because, you know, like, is it really difficult to send stuff like via mail? And if so, get a tracking number. I can, you know, like it's just it makes the work I do really, really difficult because it's not like, you know, I can call Visa and be like, hey, can I pay for this? with retweets. Like it doesn't work like that. And I just, I'm really, really frustrated. And this is something we know in an industry and a lot of the sports writers I know are actually women. They don't have staff jobs. And by the way, if there's anyone out there that wants to give me a staff job, I'm so up for that. But the thing is, is that this is, it's really frustrating. It's not just, I mean, yes, I'm saying this is my experience and hopefully a lot of people have better experiences, but from the conversation I've had with other women, people of color in sports and writing and all people, this is a common thing. So if you're an editor out there listening, please get on this shit because it's unfair and I want to burn it. Burn. Burn. All right. After all that burning, let's talk once again about some happy things and lift up some badass people of the week. This week, for honorable mentions, we have the Saudi women who finally won access to sports stadiums. Well overdue, and I'm inspired by their fight and their courage. We also have about half of the Vanderbilt women's basketball players who knelt during the national anthem at their exhibition game. Once again, women, especially women of color, leading the way when it comes to activism in sports. Gisela Truco, the first lines woman to officiate a professional match in Argentina. Brava. And can I get a quick drum roll, please? (laughs) 
can't even make that sound. <laughs> We're very good at that. Very good. All right. My badass woman of the week is Jean Kim. She is a transgender rugby player who is a senior at Fordham, and she has partnered with Athlete Ally to send a message to World Rugby, the sport's international governing body, to update its policies that block the participation of transgender athletes. She would like to be able to play with her team and compete with her team her last few months in college, which is this spring. It's all she wants is a chance, she said, told me, to step on the field as equals with her teammates. She's able to practice with the team because the team loves Mm -hmm. her and the coach loves her, but she is not able to compete because of these archaic rules by World Rugby. And you can go to my piece and think progress to read more about this. But thank you for leading this fight, Jean. You are an inspiration. All right. So we've got some listener mail, which we love so much. Shireen, what are our listeners saying to us this week? Well, I just wanted to read a piece from our friend of the show and fellow flamethrower, Emma Roberts. And it was just in, it was actually happy letter. And I like happy letters because we get lots of updates about, hey, could you talk about this? This is problematic and this needs to be burned. But this particular one was about, first of all, I will admit, I didn't realize there was an ice hockey scene in Sydney, Australia. I had no idea. And I will put away my Canadian sort of pompous arrogance about that, (laughs) about being the center of hockey universe. (laughs) But I just want to shout out, and I'm just going to read a short clip of Emma's mail with I have her permission to do so. The Sydney Sirens, my favorite team, has an amazing new goalie last season. We all wondered where she came from, and boy, did Ella make an excellent tandem to Sarah. As the season went on, Ella was open about being transgender, and of course, she was welcomed into the fold with the progressive and inclusive Sirens, who already boast and love to death many LGBTIQ players. It is not without pain, though, with an instance, an opposition player, which led to the sirens decking out Canterbury ice ring with pride flags for hosting of the final series, which they won in an amazing six-round shootout. During the AIHL season, the Sydney Bears hosted a pride night for which they interviewed Sirens player, including Ella, who was also a guest of honor and dropped the puck. And then there's a link to, to that to that video. And Emma continues, I was a little sad that masculinity is still gross and that no LGBTIQA plus men's players were comfortable to chat, but so proud of the women being the leaders in this area of hockey. I highly recommend watching Ella's interviews with Bianca and the Bears videos. In this, we found out she had her surgery scheduled and might not make a recovery in time for tryouts. And with Sarah having another child, we weren't sure who would be backstopping our team. Imagine our relief when Ella was on the team list and on the ice Saturday afternoon with one of our close friends, Paula, as backup goalie too. Ella had two periods of no goals against on Sunday morning. So let's see how long she can keep that puck out for us if we can stop giving silly penalties. So that was amazing. Just want to shout out Sydney Sirens. Ella, love hearing about this story. And we would we love to get mail like this. And also thank you so much, Emma, for listening and supporting us. All right, friends, what's good in your life this week? What are you looking forward to? Jess? Yeah, so today, Sunday, I'm participating in a discussion at the Texas Book Festival here in Austin with the amazing romance novelist Alicia Rye about romance novels, consent, healthy relationships, and sex. 
And then later this week, my first piece for Shondaland will drop, and it's a Q&A with Rye. Oh. So I'm very excited about my Alicia Rye-centered things this week. And if you are looking for a great romance novel, Her Gentleman in the Street and Hate to Want You are brilliant, lovely, hot books. I love that so much. I'm actually going home to North Carolina for a few days. I'm going to surprise my granddad at his, I believe, 93rd birthday celebration. And uh, happy birthday, Grandpa. I don't think he listens to podcasts. So I think that the surprise <laughs> is, is safe here. But I, I'm really excited. So I'm going to head down Wednesday morning and I haven't been home in like six months. So I'm excited. All right, Shireen? Oh, that's awesome. Yay. I'm off to University of Connecticut this week, which is really exciting. I am hopefully going to meet the Huskies, the women's basketball team. I'm hoping that that works out. I will be doing a lecture series called Beyond the Field as part of that, talking about how to decimate systems of misogyny, sexism, you know, and, and dangerous ones in sport and how to be a good ally. I'm also reading my friend Amy Bass's book, One Goal, and I'm really excited about that. It's not actually out yet. I'm pre-reading it. And I'm also really excited about the new Pop for President t-shirt I'm about to buy. <laughs> so, Yay. I'm one click away. So That's amazing. All right. Well, listen, thank you all for listening to this week's episode. We had a blast and I believe touched on some topics that we've been meaning to get into here at Burn It All Down. You can support us by listening to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, basically whatever podcast app of your choice is. You can check out our website and burnitalldownpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter, burnitdownpod at Twitter, and email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Listen, we love listener mail. We love to hear from you all. And we do still have a GoFundMe going. We're going to shut down our GoFundMe soon and move on to our phase two of our sustainability efforts. We're very excited about some announcements we have coming up. But we still are trying to recoup our startup costs that took us just to get us going this far. If you have anything that you are willing to give to us for support, we appreciate all your support. It just means the world to us. And if you can't donate, please just go and rate and review us on iTunes. Listen, thank you guys so much for Lindsay Gibbs and Shereen Ahmed and Jessica Luther. This is Burn It All Down. Hey.